Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. Um, before we start, if I could just ask you to make sure your mobile phones are on silent, um, so as not to disturb tonight's talk. I'm really excited about today's event because when, when we came up with the theme for this year's Festival of Ideas, um, the theme is extremes. And it was very obvious to me that we would have, you know, events about extremist politics, extremist religions, uh, extreme weather. But I really wanted people to be able to um, interpret the theme a little bit more creatively. And I think this is where tonight's uh, talk comes in. It's, it's about different ends of a spectrum of behaviors, you know, so extremes in a very different way. So tonight's speaker is... Um, Terry Apter, um, she's an author and psychologist here in Cambridge, and her last book um, called Passing Judgment is an analysis of the shaping effects of praise and blame in various life stages and relationships. So if you uh, could give her a warm welcome, please. Thanks very much, thank you. Well, the Festival of Ideas is an opportunity to air new ideas for discussion and, of course, for challenge. New ideas often arise through reflections on accumulated research, as they do here in my talk about the role judgment plays in our day-to-day -day lives. So for several decades, I've studied children's emotional development within their families and friendships. And more recently, I've explored the dynamics of marriage. And I came to see that each of us has something that I describe as a judgment meter that runs pretty constantly, assessing each person and each interaction with people as positive or negative. So there are two systems of judgment, approach and avoidance, approval and disapproval, very, very broadly, praise and blame that shape our daily interactions and our long-term relationships. And I can start this with a very familiar story about human beginnings, and that's the story of Adam and Eve, how they lived in God's praise until they did something he disapproved of and blamed, judged, and found wanting, they experienced for the first time the toxic emotion of shame. And of course, this shame involved expulsion from the place that they found as home. And this story can be read as a story about original sin, or um, about a lost paradise. But however you interpret it, it highlights crucial and abiding themes in our lives. Judgment that involves both praise and blame, and our responses to these, either pride or shame. Now, these are the themes I explore in my new book, Passing Judgment. But there I look beyond the Bible to the source of our interest in praise and blame. And this source can be seen in the evolution of human psychology. The evolutionary psychology looks at why it is we care about the things we do care about. 
Well, our ancestors lived in social groups. They were dependent on one another for information, food, and protection. And exclusion from one's group would have been synonymous with death. And one constant in any of the variety of human environments is the need to live with others, at least for part of our lives, to cooperate with at least some others, to depend on at least some people. And to do this, we need mindsight, that is, the ability to understand other people's feelings, motives, and desires, maybe even to get a handle on their thoughts. And a consequence of mindsight is judgment of others and attentiveness to their judgments of us. Now, until about 30 years ago, the human brain was studied largely for its ability to process factual information and to solve problems. It was thought that humans' particularly large brain involved, evolved for the special purpose of mastering practical skills. But more recently, a very different hypothesis emerged as to why humans require such brain power. And a large brain is, in evolutionary terms, costly. It's about 4% of our body weight, but it consumes about 20% of our total energy intake. And it also increases the risk to mother and baby um, at birth because you have that large head with the large brain that has to pass through the narrow birth canal. So why has such a costly organ evolved? Well, it's now understood that the large size of the human brain results from its fundamental sociability. This is the social brain hypothesis, and it's supported by evidence from other species in which relative brain size depends on whether the species is solitary or social. So for example, the, birds, the brains of birds that flock together are larger than the brains of solitary birds. And further, the brain size of any creature increases if it moves from being solitary to being social and part of a coordinated group. Even the locust, as it crowds with others in its swarm state and has to pay attention to what other locusts are doing, we can see there that their brain size enlarges by about one-third. So in every species, from locusts to birds to humans, a species' larger brain is linked to greater sociability. And a big part of using that brain as humans involves judging others as friend or foe, competitor or ally, as reliable or flaky. And as social beings, we also need to monitor others' judgments of us. We need to do this because we need that to learn what we have to be to be included in their group. And the pioneering psychologist, uh, William James, brother of the novelist Henry, said, I should not be living now had I not become sensitive to looks of approval or disapproval 
on the faces among which my life is cast. So in other words, if he lacked mind sight and his judgment was compromised, then survival would be very difficult. Indeed, without always being aware of it, in the first milliseconds of perceiving someone, we begin to form an opinion, positive or negative. And this is a legacy from crucial survival responses that prime us to assess a person as someone to approach or avoid. And over time, as societies became more complex, the human brain demonstrated much more subtle and probing and varied appraisals. We remain interested in whether someone is dangerous or trustworthy. We remain interested in that today. But we also understand that there are nuances. So someone can be trustworthy in some aspects, and we have to be wary of that person in other aspects. So we have to weigh things up. We weigh up risks. And we also have additional concerns whether someone would understand our problems and predicaments, whether we're on the same wavelength, whether we would enjoy eating, talking, joking, debating with someone. And of course, we care about whether he or she responds positively to us. And here again, daily, there are two systems of judgment, approach and avoidance, approval and disapproval, very broadly, praise and blame. And it no, there's no point in trying to shut down this judgmental activity. As humans, we have judgmental brains, and judgment is what we do. We can also understand our own individual judgmental brains from our personal histories. So the first judgment we're likely to experience in our interpersonal world if we're lucky enough and born into a good enough environment, is praise from a parent's curiosity, delight, and wonder. I mean, praise, after all, is much broader than any specific compliment or formal assessment. In fact, if you look up praise in the Oxford English Dictionary, the first entry as a verb is to express warm approval or admiration. And this is precisely what that early parental wonder conveys. It drives home the message that we are admirable, that the people on whom we depend think we're wonderful. And so praise becomes part of our world long before we understand the words, well done or good job. And should we, as an infant, fail to attract this approval, and admiration. Our survival is at great risk. It means there aren't people around who are invested in us, who think we're worthwhile. And even if we do survive, lack of praise hinders our development. Because praise in early stages of life is not merely pleasant. Research in neuroscience shows that it is essential to the growth of a healthy brain. So the brain grows very rapidly in early childhood by forming networks of interconnected neurons. These are the basic elements in the brain's communication system. And specific hormones play a role and provide essential fuel 
in building these brain circuits. The most important hormones in early brain development are oxytocin, this is sometimes called the bonding hormone, and endorphins. These are some of the naturally occurring opiates that give us a high. The high is very much like the high that other opiates could give us, such as heroin. And when a parent's face conveys praise with a message, I want to see who you are and I admire you, the infant's brain is awash with both oxytocin and endorphin compounds. And in an, if an infant does not experience the brain-boosting effects of praise, if an infant is ignored or neglected or abused, then the hormones that flood the brain are likely to be stress hormones. And there are compelling studies that show just how stressful it is for an infant to be ignored. Even when the parent is present, so the infant isn't abandoned, but if the parent is present but is non-responsive, then even over a two-minute period, the infant can um, experience great distress, and it can take some time for that infant to calm down. And the most common of these stress hormones is cortisol, and prolonged exposure to cortisol is toxic to the developing brain. It leaves it not only with fewer neural pathways, but it also renders it less plastic, less adaptable, so that even if the emotional environment improves later on, that child is less equipped to learn and catch up. That brain has less capacity for growth. And eventually, a child will interpret neglect or abuse or indifference as a kind of blame. It's the message you're not of value. There's something about you that's deficient. Now, in an infant's world, praise involves a pretty standard repertoire of showing interest and delight. But in childhood and adolescence, each family reveals unique habits and rules for praise and blame. So in one family, praise is steady and consistent and routinely maintained. In another family, praise is unpredictable and often short-lived. So when one person responds to praise with easy pleasure, you know, as though praise just confirms what they already knew about themselves, while another person feels very anxious or confused in the face of praise, you can talk about personality differences, but it's also likely that their families used praise in very different ways, and their different expectations arose accordingly. And of course, the same is true of blame. One person takes blame in his or her stride and can shrug it off. Yes, I messed up, but it was a mistake anyone could make. Now, another hardens and bristles and becomes very defensive and says, it wasn't my fault, or, you know, how dare you blame me? Whereas a third person can 
be flooded with self-abuse as soon as he or she is blamed and say, oh yes, I really messed up, I always do that, it's all my fault. And such very different responses are linked to the ways blame is meted out within our families, and in particular, whether blame is used to highlight a specific mistake, some particular act or omission, or whether any single mistake is thought to signal a deep character flaw. And this difference can be seen even in um, rather moderate differences in phrasing. So if someone says something to me and I say, what you said was really unkind, I'm criticizing them, blaming them, but I'm also focusing on what they actually said. Whereas if I say, what you said shows that you're really mean, then I'm focusing on their character. And so important are the way that praise and blame are used that you can look at the history of parenting advice through the lens of how praise and blame, how advice is given about how to praise and blame a child. It's really important to realize that neither is simple. A lot of people think praise is always good and it's straightforward. But one of the pioneering child psychologists working on this, Chaim Gineau, uh, he was looking at this in the 1960s, and he noticed that praise was indeed a powerful teaching tool, but like anything, and he called it an emotional medicine, and he said like any powerful medication, there have to be rules about timing and dosage. There should also be alerts about possible allergic reactions. You have to treat praise in the same way that you would treat a powerful um, medicine. And he could have added, I think, that the rules about dosage and risks change according to age. Because praise that arouses delight and pride in a baby and toddler can have very different effects on older children. So it's been found that in a classroom, praise can arouse anxiety. And you can see why. It's a re it reminds the child that he or she is being watched that can induce self-consciousness, and that can really interrupt concentration. Some children in school need, a, need to be praised before they can take the next step. They need sort of to be praised, nudged by praise constantly. And these are children who have often been fed a steady diet of praise. You know, you're wonderful. Um, just because you turned up, you know, you're a success. Um, you do a scribble. That's great. That's wonderful. And these children um, are very confused as to what it is that it is, is praiseworthy or not in their behavior and in their performance. Unable to assess their own work, they turn to other people and need to be praised before they uh, can continue. But the most significant change there's been in recent fashions is about what to praise. So it was once thought that it 
was good practice to praise a child for being smart or talented or intelligent. And in that way, you would uh, convince a child that he or she was those things. You are smart. And therefore, that child would behave accordingly. This is sort of the Pygmalion effect. I'll tell you what you are, I'll give you labels, and you will act up or act down to those. But such praise for intelligence, talent, have recently been shown to undermine motivation and that it's far more effective to praise qualities that flag the possibility of growth and change, of becoming something. So the current trend in praising children is to focus on how persistence, practice, and concentration yield good results. You've really worked hard at that is now seen to be preferable to you're doing well because you're so clever. And these guidelines remain the best available for praise in an educational setting, particularly for children. But in the teen years, all bets of what works are off. Whereas once the parents' admiration was welcome, it can now seem to the teen stale, outdated, or even offensive. Teens want to be their own judge, and the idea that a parent is in a position to judge them, even positively, can be really annoying. And blame is even more complicated. Uh, the teenage brain is still in a state of development, and one of the peculiarities of this developmental phase is that teens process social information differently from the way the adult brain uh, processes it. And teens can often confuse neutral facial expressions with expressions of anger, hostility, or fear. So they're very quick to take offense. And when they do take offense, they're less adept at calming themselves down so they brood and stew angrily when they feel blamed or found wanting. But it's important to understand that we all become very negatively aroused when we're blamed. Blame is hard to take at any age. The feelings that blame arouses are so painful that our mind has to hand a variety of techniques for evading it. We might protect ourselves by stubbornly denying our mistakes. You know, that's not what I did. We might blame others. You made me do it. We might disparage someone for blaming us. Who are you to blame me? We might also transform our memories to make a more palatable version of events. So someone comes to me and explains that I did something that was very offensive to them. And I'm shocked because in my memory of that event, I only did good things and I can't remember any of the bad things that I'm told I said. And that's my memory trying to protect my ego. 
And we try to avoid blame because thinking anything other than I'm pretty good, I'm praiseworthy, anything other than that delivers a nasty punch to the most primitive emotional parts of our brain and it threatens us with shame. Now, shame is an emotion closely linked to our terror of exclusion, exclusion from the human groups on which we depend. And James Gilligan is a psychiatrist who's worked with some of the world's most extreme outcasts, and he says shame is brutal. It is tantamount to the death of the self. Without confirmation of value, so without access to praise, the self dies just as surely as the body dies without oxygen. Now, it may be obvious that uh, praise and blame play a huge role in infancy and childhood and that families with children are awash with judgment, but we never outgrow judgment's power to shape relationships. And in marriage, a couple might embrace the ideal of total acceptance, yet in the course of any marriage, each partner is exposed to a wide range of judgments both positive and negative. And these judgments include judgments about what someone does, what they say, even what they feel, whether they're being fair, whether they're being considerate, whether they're being attentive. I mean, we often think we should be non-judgmental in a close relationship, but the closer we are to someone, the more we judge them. And I was amazed when I looked closely at marital conversations, how praise and blame could be embedded in routine and apparently mundane issues. I see the kitchen taps been mended, one partner says. And this could mean you're on it, you're clever, you're organized. Or it could mean finally you've done something. And the judgments embedded within the messages are rarely ignored. I mean, each couple will have a, you know, its own special choreography of praise and blame. And praise will ease the next few interactions, and blame will just tie communication in knots. And blame often triggers a counterattack. You're saying this is my fault, or I'm the unreliable one, am I? And the many defenses we use against blame may protect our ego, but they often damage relationships. And understanding the dynamics of, of marriage really rests on understanding the dynamics of praise and blame. Now, very little was understood about why some marriages succeeded and why some failed until a small handful of psychologists accepted that they weren't getting anywhere with this question with the data they had. They had, on the one hand, large survey data and statistical information. On the other hand, they had a small handful of clinical cases if they were therapists. So these psychologists concluded that the only way to improve their understanding was to observe couples talking and, of course, arguing in their daily lives. Now, this kind of research is costly. 
it's unwieldy, it's difficult to manage, but they decided it was the only way forward. So one of these psychologists with his team, John Gottman, set up a marriage lab on the medical campus in the University of Washington in Seattle. And this was complete with fully furnished apartment where a couple discusses both neutral topics. It might be, how was your day? That isn't always a neutral topic, but it's a possible suggestion. And they'd also discuss a topic uh, that was an area of disagreement, which again could be anything. You know, it could be child schooling, it could be um, finances, it could be which boiler to install. And cameras and recorders would capture the visual and verbal information, including posture and fidgeting and foot tapping and even eye movements. But there was additional equipment uh, that would record physiological information including heart rate and perspiration, adrenaline flow, blood pressure. And the layers of information were carefully coded and then compared with the couple's survival rate. Did they remain together or did they separate? And if they separated, was it after five years or was it after 16 years? And after three decades of data and over 3,000 couples, Gottman showed that one variable was most strongly correlated with couples' survival rates. And the key variable wasn't whether a couple quarreled. Uh, some couples seemed to enjoy the high drama of heated arguments. The key variable wasn't whether they had interests in common or whether the sex chemistry was sustained. The key variable was the role of praise and blame in their relationship. And more specifically, it was the amount of praise relative to blame, because it's not a simple one-to-one -one balance. Blame carries more weight than praise. We have to work harder to process it and manage it. So more praise is needed to remedy any instance of blame. And Gottman found that it took five instances of praise to repair the damage done by one instance of blame. And this is now known uh, throughout marriage therapy as the magic ratio, and it marks the probability of a couple's survival if they tend to have five inter positive interactions to one negative one. Now, you might think that once you know this, you can save any marriage. But we have to be careful in touting the effectiveness of praise, because effective praise, what we experience as real praise, isn't always easy for someone else to identify. Praise, remember, it's a powerful emotional medicine, and it can be used to exert power and to assign roles you're so helpful, or you're always so strong. Well, that sometimes, that's nice to hear, but it sometimes suggests that what your partner needs is for you to be helpful or strong. And it can be a reminder that if you are anything other than these things, if you're feeling weak, if you're not particularly helpful, then you're putting the relationship at work, at risk. You're, um, you know, you're disappointing your partner. If someone says, one partner says to another, 
no one can raise a child like you can. Well, that's a wonderful thing to hear. But when it drowns out your own needs for relief from childcare, for balance in your life, for freedom to pursue other ambitions, then that kind of praise can be infuriating. Good praise has ears, it listens, it's responsive to a person's own goals and values. And when praise shuts down its listening function, it becomes a tool of authority. It can be patronizing, it can be controlling, and sometimes even menacing. Now, when we enter our workplace, we may leave behind that intense intimacy of our family life, but we don't leave behind our judgment meter. So in meetings, we listen to our colleagues and we respond to the substance of what they say, but we also assess their character and their motives. And when we have trouble judging someone, we'll seek help from someone else, normally someone whose judgment meter seems sort of more aligned to ours. So we ask, what do you think of Joel's work? Do you have trouble getting through to Emily? And these informal exchanges are a version of that essential human activity, often known as gossip. Gossip occurs in all societies. Both men and women engage in it. And it's a way of creating alliances by checking and pooling our judgments. And so important are praise and blame in the workplace that feeling unappreciated at work is one of the most common reasons for leaving an organization. So in one study, 1,200 people who had recently left a job um, said that 37% of them said it was because of boss failed to give them the credit that they felt they deserved. They weren't getting appropriate praise. 23% said they left because a boss blamed others in order to cover up his own mistakes. In other words, blame was inappropriate. And it's also been found that being unappreciated at work or feeling that you're unappreciated at your work is far more stressful than overwork. In fact, lack of praise generally is bad for our health. So it's been found over and over again that within one city, in areas very close to one another, the um, life expectancy can vary enormously. I mean, by as much as 17 years. And epidemiologists have shown that this is not primarily a result of differences in what people eat and drink and whether they smoke, but because of differences in experience of praise and blame. Being treated with respect, having your input appreciated, wearing and using and being offered symbols of high status create a healthy environment. Winning prizes is really very good for your health, especially big ones like the Nobel Prize can add at least four years to your lifespan. But being ignored, rejected, avoided, feared, all that induces stress. And chronic stress may switch off the genes that protect our immune responses and our heart development. 
and those unhealthy habits, smoking, alcohol, and drugs, that are often seen as the underlying cause of differences in longevity, are more likely to be byproducts of living without access to praise. It is praise poverty that is the underlying killer. So our experiences of praise and blame affect not only our happiness, but also our health and how long we live. Yet a small portion of people live as outliers, impervious to guilt and shame. They may want to please others, but this is largely because they want influence and power. They want to manipulate others. Now, their brains don't ring with primitive alarm when they inflict pain. They suffer no anxiety from blame or self-blame. And these shameless exceptions are thought to constitute approximately 1% of the population, and they are commonly referred to as psychopaths. But for most of this, this is an alien brain. In our everyday lives, we process a vast array of judgments. We try to be fair and empathic. We ruminate over our own praiseworthy and blameworthy traits. We do this as we talk to a friend or a partner, as we read a book, as we watch television, as we listen to the news. Most of us really do work hard daily to use our judgment meters well. But there is a new force that is skewing judgment. It increases the speed of our judgments, but at the same time, it reduces their reliability. It thrives on low-level information, makes good and complex information particularly difficult to process, and it diminishes the likelihood that we'll gather new evidence. And this force, of course, is social media. Social media thrives on quick, strong, shallow judgments, and particularly negative ones. Now, just as in marriage, uh, we can see that blame carries more weight than praise, so too abusive comments make a bigger splash on social media. But the trouble is, on social media, making a big splash is interpreted as praise. You get more attention. You get more followers. This is a kind of praise. And all too often, you don't care about being unfair or hurtful because the people you're talking about aren't really people. They're profiles disseminating fragments of thoughts and opinions. And the dramatic arc of their responses, that really deep human response, is lost in that solipsistic digital space. Nor in this dimensionless communication are there other people around to signal to you that you're behaving badly. If I were to be very rude to someone in this room, then other people, I could, I'd be able to see that others' eyes would tense, that there'd be a little pull down of muscles at the mouth, that there'd be a clench of the shoulders. It would all be a reminder to me that I may well be being unfair, that I'm being unkind, that this isn't appropriate behavior. You don't get that when it's just you and your digital device. 
So perhaps we have not yet evolved to manage judgment well on social media, and we're often fooled into trusting untrustworthy sources, and many normally sensitive, kind people can be ruthless and bigoted and downright cruel. And it's also a place where we're particularly vulnerable to cyber saboteurs who can use this modern but very primitive communication to confuse and distort our judgment meter further. So it's hard work keeping up with the proliferating complexities of our judgment meter, scoping out when to trust it and when to challenge it. And recently, psychological research has focused on how our judgment can easily be distorted, how we take shortcuts. Um, but on the whole, they're focusing on um, decisions that we make in finance or about big groups of people uh, or about our political orientation. In my very different research on judgment, I'm focusing on the impact of judgment on our interpersonal worlds, sort of at a micro level. And I observe not embedded, entrenched biases, but a basic human eagerness to test and refine our judgments. I see a common drive to acquire expertise in our assessment of others, and this appears all around us. It emerges in the popularity of debate as we invite challenges to our own views, and in our love of storytelling, because there we can challenge familiar ways of thinking about who deserves praise and blame. And it's evident here in the Festival of Ideas that shows a hunger for new information and new perspectives. Honing our judgment is a crucial lifetime task but this isn't a matter of silencing emotionally infused judgments or smothering our highly individual responses. It's a matter of what seeing what works and does not work within the relationships we value and remaining curious about others so that we listen to judgments that differ from ours and remain open to new ways of seeing. Every time we wonder, am I being fair, or is someone being fair to me, as we're likely to do several times each day, we exhibit that drive to balance trust and challenge in our judgment. And when these conditions are in play, our constantly running judgment meter has a chance to improve constantly. Thank you. And I'm very happy to take questions. There are mics. Your question is important to us, as they say on the recorded message. But your question is important, and we have mics. So uh, wait for the mic to arrive. OK, two questions, um, one in the front row, one in the second row. Um, I, I was very interested in what you said about teenagers. I don't have any yet, but my children will soon be. Um, did you have any advice on how to solve those problems that you so <laughs> carefully described for us? 
Okay, well, um, first of all, um, with all of the information that is coming out about how the teen brain is different, um, it can, it, the implication can be that they're just a different kind of being, that we can't reach them, that we just have to weather it. Um, and that isn't the case. Uh, for all their bravado, for all their apparent rebellion, they really do continue to care deeply about what parents think of them. And so, you know, praising them well, as I say, is a matter of listening. And it can come, and, and sometimes their objection to what it is you're praising them for can be a reminder that your expectations of them are out of date. Um, so, um, you know, they can, it, it can be very counterproductive if you tell them they look great. You think they're, you know, lovely, and they say, well, that's just proof that I really look awful. Um, <laughs> You know, I can't go out if I can't go out in this dress if you like it. <laughs> but that that's not the whole that's not the whole relationship. So it is a matter of um, knowing that they might be very quick to take offense. Um, and if you are not defensive, if you can say yes, I I really was neutral. You know, say to yourself, I really was neutral. Um, and you took a and this teen is, you know, accusing me of, um, you know, being hostile, being angry, being afraid that she can't look after herself. Um, you know, knowing that she may be processing your neutral face in this way, I think is helpful because then you don't feel so defensive. But I've also found that when teens and parents interact, that parents often miss the repair steps that the teens themselves take in the relationship because they they want to alter the relationship. Uh, they want to update it. And they want it to be, you know, a good vital relationship so they're not afraid, you know, to throw challenges. But they really do care about it. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to to give advice when it's so general because, um, but the, the general thing is your teen cares about what you think. Uh, teen may be very quick to misinterpret, to take offense, and you shouldn't feel that's because you've done something wrong. And to look out for those, look out for those moves that the teen makes to do some repair and, um, you know, what is the message behind this objection to, um, you know, you're praising me in an outdated way or inappropriate way? Sometimes it will be nonsense. Sometimes it will just be temper. But sometimes there will be information there. Um, well, um, I certainly describe repair steps in my book on, um, this is on uh, mothers and teenage daughters. That was easier to write than on sons, not because I'm not interested in boys, but because there was more information, there's more interaction. <laughs> and then you can see examples of uh, how some mothers themselves aroused and defensive don't see 
that, you know, by changing the subject, by offering to do a little thing, um, by, uh, by pointing to something they have in common, it can be a pet, it can be a little sibling, that what they're doing is trying to get the relationship back on even keel. Okay. Thank you, that was great. Um, I have a question about blame. So okay. we often hear things like, I'm not going to engage in a blame game, yes. or um, I'm not getting into the politics of blame. And you mentioned evolutionary history um, and how that relates to praise and blame. But uh, that doesn't mean we can't change it. So I'm, I'm wondering if you okay. think that we do too much blaming and if um, we would be happier if we didn't do so much. Okay, well, <laughs> thank you. Uh, right, so um, in saying that we have judgmental brains, I'm certainly not saying that our judgments are fixed. I'm saying that we, and remember judgment of course is positive as well as negative. Um, and where uh, I believe most of us are constantly trying to um, monitor and moderate our, our fairness. Um, and there, there are different aspects of blame. Let me first say that when I uh, talk about shame and blame or, you know, be, being shamed, sometimes you can be shamed because other people are behaving badly towards you. So you're not doing anything blameworthy if you take blame in its logical structure. What I'm doing is saying we feel blamed. This is, so it's a cycle, you know, it, it doesn't have, it, it isn't the kind of blame that a lawyer would refer to or many philosophers if they're doing moral philosophy, but it's how, what we feel is happening to us. I'm being deficient. Um, you know, I'm not worthwhile. Um, there's something deeply wrong with me and I'm being blamed. So, um, in terms of I'm not playing the blame game. Well, um, blame games are often played badly. So um, if something is not your fault, but it's completely someone else's doing, then that can be a game because um, then I'm okay and I don't have to worry about myself and it's all you. I also did say how we become very defensive when we're blamed, and so we grab hold of defenses that um, can make us feel good for it. They're meant to protect our ego, but they really do damage to our relationships. And also there is um, a phenomenon called, which I'm sure you've heard of, threat rigidity, whereas if I feel I'm being blamed, I'm less likely to see the other person's point of view. Um, I'm less likely um, to see a broader picture and how I played, what role I played in it. So for all of those reasons, just blame is often crude. It's often defensive. It's often a way of taking yourself out of, um, you know, reduce, you hope it reduces the risk of you being found at fault, and it's often counterproductive, and we can get much better at that, and I think one way of getting better at it is seeing that how often we are judging people. I mean, sometimes you look at conversations, 
and um, an argument arises out of apparently nothing uh, because something has been interpreted as a criticism or as blame, and we can get better at it. So thank you for that. Very important. Yes. Um, okay, there's, oh, yes, there's one there, and then there's one back there, uh, second to the last row. Thank Hi. you. That is, that is a very fascinating lecture. Um, if you take a family, and if the two parents um, diverge, one yeah. blames, the other praises, do you think it neutralizes the two? Um, <laughs> the other is that if children form coalitions yes. with one parent or the other parent, again, does that help or hinder the marriage? <laughs> okay, but praise and blame of a parent, does that neutralize it? I suppose you could imagine a family in which it does. Um, I suppose you could imagine a family in which um, one, um, one parent is seen to be much more powerful and wise, you know, socially, socially knowing than the other. And so praise from that parent could be very supportive. But once you do that, you're diminishing the um, judgment of the other parent. And I mean, if you're talking about power within couples, one, you know, power is measured in all sorts of ways. You know, some people think it arises from how access to wealth or social position. But one way of assessing who has power in a mar marriage is saying whose judgment matters more. So I don't think you would get a situation in which things were actually neutralized, you might get a situation in which one parent's judgment mattered more. Um, and, um, you know, you, you can never say nothing. It's not a good route to take, but it doesn't mean that a child within that family, um, you know, will be harmed or that, you know, sometimes children are just very adept at taking only the good messages from a family and carrying it that that with them, and sometimes um, you know they're haunted throughout their lives by the more negative messages, even if there have been um, some positive ones. And often you hear about very deprived, emotionally deprived uh, families in which there is one person somewhere who got through to that child and said you know, here you have access to praise. I think you're worthwhile. And that's enough to see that child uh, through. Coalitions, coalitions between children. Um, you know, you um, th that's a big thing. That's a delicate choreography, which, you know, you need to look at, you, you need specific examples to work, to work through, and also to know what the effects are, so you can, you can manage that. Thank you. Um, there was a question back, uh, second to the last row. Um, you mentioned the rapid judgments that we make on social media based on yeah. very limited information. Um, but that's also what people who use dating apps or dating websites are encouraged to do 
And I was wondering what you thought about that in terms of the educational relationships in general and the sort of quite changing landscape in terms of like the situations in which uh, people are making romantic judgments initially. Right, okay, so you would have a, I don't know the data on how successful the dating apps are. I mean, how um, often your quick judgment of, um, I'm not going to swipe, I don't even know what you do, I'm not going to swipe him, I'm going to keep him, you know, as, as one of my contacts. I don't know how that pans out in terms of successful relationships. Um, I think there is a, de a danger in, with social media and that the language that, especially for teens, the language used on social media becomes so important that, uh, and, and their aims, um, are so, they're so geared up to, I want to be Facebook famous or I want to get lots of likes. And so that very shallow, uh, structure does become part of their broader social world. And I think that's damaging. Okay, uh, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Um, if you're interested in buying Dr. Apter's book, it is for sale downstairs. Thank you. Good night. Okay. I'm